KMC HD3 Detroit, KMPS HD3 Seattle, WBMX HD3 Boston, and on AOL Radio and Yahoo Launchcast. Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now 248 545 Soul. New SkyRadio.com. How will you face death? What if a doctor told you tomorrow that you have terminal cancer? As the meter ticked, would that doctor talk to you about God and or what might follow bodily death? Hey there, and welcome to the 446th broadcast of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and those pretty good, pretty good, those halfway decent, those, halfway decent, those moderately concise questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal my dad so continuing our recent fun of sobering topics this evening uh, we welcome our guest uh, who has first-hand experience with those questions wise guy dr stephen j Iacoboni is an oncologist care advocate and author of the book the undying soul a cancer doctor's discovery a 30-year veteran of his field, Dr. Iacoboni is co-director of hematology oncology at the Kennewick General Hospital in Kennewick, Washington. He served his fellowship in medical oncology at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, where he received the Outstanding Researcher Award and was asked to present his findings to the American Society of Clinical Oncology. In 1989, he co-founded St. Mary's Regional Cancer Center in Washington State, and he practiced there for, for 16 years. He was appointed medical director of the Kootenai Care. I hope I'm pronouncing these things correctly. Around here, we have nothing more exotic than Boston or Providence. Kootenai Cancer Center for, in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho in 2001. And in 20, 2010, returned to Washington to assume his current post. Uh, beyond his practice, Dr. Iacoboni has appeared on radio and TV across the U.S. on such topics as how the seriously ill should, con- should choose a doctor Contrived Drug Shortages and Bridging the Gap Between Science and Spirituality. His website is www.theundyingsoul.com. Also, a video from KVEW-TV uh, is on the net as well. Uh, there's a link to that on the Talking Points page at our, uh, for this show at BehindTheParanormal.com, our show website. And there we are. Dr. Steve Iacoboni, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thank you, Paul and Ben. It's a real pleasure to be with you this evening. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. So, Doctor, let's um, let's let's start off with something. Well, not really easy, but something kind of simple or not simple, depending on how you look at it. So, what's it like when you have to tell someone they're going to die? Well, uh, I say it's not kind of work for everybody, um, and uh, you have to um, understand that even though I, I mean, I have to say to myself that even though I've had this conversation maybe 5,000 times uh, in my career. It's the first time, or one of the first times for the family members and the first time for the individual. And so um, you have to be uh, gentle and uh, sensitive and uh, uh, caring, of course. One of the things you have to do is you have to have an intuition for the patient's psyche at the time, and you have to pick the right time to say what you say and how you say it. Uh, in fact, the question or the, the, the statement is so difficult that many of my colleagues never actually admit it to their patients, which is part of um, one of the things I, I talk about uh, or try to get changed is that uh, most oncologists sort of uh, play along in the denial um, 
attitude with their patients so that they never have to really have what is obviously a difficult conversation. Um, the death is usually described in the abstract, sort of, if you don't take the chemotherapy, then you'll die, so you better do what I say kind of conversation. Um, it's a hard conversation to have, so I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just saying that it's the one that everyone seems to avoid, maybe more than they should. Uh, you have to pick the time when the patient is receptive. If the patient is full of denial, uh, it won't do a lot of good to, to, to um, be insistent. Um, so you, you, you actually tiptoe up and you go as far as they let you. So you, say, so you start with saying, well, you know, uh, you, you found that you have cancer, and then you wait and see how they respond to that. And then you say um, it's certain stage. And if it's early stage, then you don't worry about death so much as curing it. But if it's advanced stage, and you say it's advanced stage, and then you would get the reaction, explain what that means. And then you say, here are the treatment options and so on. And um, so you, it's a step-by-step -step process. And then along the way, you may have to have the, stop the conversation, have it again a week or two or a month later, which is why it's so important to gain their patient's trust along the way through your actions, uh, which you prove to them that you care about them and that you're competent and that you're... Um, you're, you're sensitive to their needs. This is something that builds over time. By the time that I get to the point where patients are dying and ready to hear me tell them that, we bonded very, very deeply. Uh, and uh, that makes it immensely easier. It's obviously not the sort of thing you can say very easily in passing to someone who's just met you or just known you for a week or two. Mm -hmm. So how did you decide that uh, you had to go beyond science in dealing with this? Well, of course, uh, science is wonderful, but uh, it doesn't, it has so far not um, allowed us to become immortal. <laughs> no. And so uh, everybody uh, has to face their mortality. And uh, what's unique about oncology is that patients are aware of their impending mortality. You know, if you have heart disease and you're not having a heart attack at the moment, then when you see your cardiologist, he just says, well, here's your... Um, Here's your cholesterol medicine and your blood pressure medicine and call me to get chest pain. But as far as they're concerned, they're never going to have that last infarct uh, and you don't have to talk about it. And then when they do have their last infarct, it's sudden and, and they, you know, you don't have this lingering situation. Whereas people who are at end stage cancer um, know that they're on a sinking ship and waiting for it to sink takes a while. It may take a month. It may take longer than that. Anyway, so during that time, uh, patients go through a lot of the things that Kubler-Ross described, uh, denial and anger and so on. But in the end, uh, if you're facing your own death and you're fully aware of it, um, the solution or the answer to that greatest of all existential dilemmas fashioned by the human race, uh, uh, of course, has been spirituality and religion. Uh, I should rephrase that. Um, I believe that the answer to that question is given to us by God, and we receive it from God, and we use it. Um, if you're, I suppose, an agnostic or an atheist, you would say it's something humans created to make themselves feel better. I believe that God is real and that eternal life is real, uh, and that makes it, of course, a lot easier to address um, our, our mortality. But this question is, you know, the patients are, have, been your, have been your patient for years. You've had them in and out of remission. They trust you more than just about anyone else in the world outside of their family. And then 
you have to tell them that the science has no more answers and that it's time to meet their maker. And then instead of the way it was 30 years ago, they said, okay, well, I'll call my priest or rabbi or mullah. They, um, they ask me what I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so I, I finally got drawn into this conversation and realized I couldn't um, turn my back on them in terms of uh, talking to them about these issues. And I was very reluctant at first, but to my great surprise, my patients really, really love it when I engage them on this because they trust me and they know I'm educated. And it's nice for them to hear from an educated person uh, who they know and trust that the faith is real and that they don't have to be sort of um, uh, shy about it. They can embrace their faith. That's what I encourage them to do. Oh, that answered the next question almost perfectly. So what was the uh, reaction from other doctors? Well, um, you know, a lot of these conversations were held in private, uh, you know, behind closed doors. Um, It was later when I I finally realized that I needed to try to, the need was greater than I anticipated, and the response to my spiritual counseling was, much more than I anticipated, and I realized it would be worth it, in fact, to write a book so that I could reach more and more people rather than one patient at a time. Um, because I think the message is an eternal, is a is a is a timeless message for the human race, and seems to be fading in a time when we might need it most. And certainly, cancer patients do. And so I wrote the book, and then after that, of course, then there was some reaction to it. Um, most doctors um, don't come right out and tell me what they think, but uh, <laughs> a lot of them are, are, are uh, either feel threatened by it or think it's kind of fringe or um, uh, no, they're not wonderfully supportive about it, I can tell you that much. Uh, uh, well, well what, what do they tell people? Well, Just, you know, uh, lots I of yeah, I no, I hate to say this, but they never really have that conversation telling a patient that they're going to die. They will be giving them chemotherapy until their last breath, saying, "Well, I've got more chemo for you." Yeah, and don't uh, worry, you're not going to die. And uh, you know, if anyone else did that, they'd be arrested for fraud or malpractice. Uh, yeah, medical doctors get are allowed to uh, boldly mislead people. At their own professional aggrandizement, I mean, they get paid, you know, to give more chemo. Uh, it's not like they're doing it for free. Um, yeah. Um, and so uh, they they uh, and they don't want to they don't want someone like me promoting a message that they should also have to step up and be this sort of spiritual advisor. They don't want um, any doctor sort of taking on that role because then they might be. Uh, it might be demanded of them, and they don't want to do it. Um, doctors are very um, peculiar in the sense that they are very rigid in in, in, their, in following protocols and doing what the guidelines say, and uh, stepping out of bounds for them is very threatening and way out of the comfort zone. And uh, so they don't like it that I'm doing it. And, in fact, uh, I had to leave my last practice because of it. Really? Uh, the doctors there were not supportive, and I decided... Um, uh, I'd be better off if I changed environments. Interesting. Well, we are coming up on a break. <clears throat> Excuse me, I think I can use a doctor at this point myself. 
Coming up, I'm going to break. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS News Sky Radio. And our very interesting guest this evening, Dr. Steve Iacoboni. We will be right back. Stay with us. Enlighten. Empower. Enrich. This is CBS Radio's The New Sky. New horizons. No boundaries. CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal. With Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOL. NewSkyRadio.com. Believe. Well, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. And our guest this evening, Dr. Stephen Iacoboni, is uh, talking to us a very fascinating conversation about uh, aspects of dealing with dying when it comes to patients. And do you go beyond simply telling someone that they're going to be dying to uh, ideas of uh, God and the afterlife? So uh, 
one thing you must inevitably run into, Doctor, is other points of view. Now, before we get to that, you are a senior physician, and uh, you must have other doctors uh, under you, so to speak. Is that correct? Uh, yes and no. Um, I uh, made the move from my present location so that I could be in a smaller department and be a little more independent. But uh, there are younger doctors in my midst. Um, uh, hierarchically, I'm the medical director, but, you know, the thing about doctors is um, if you let them alone and do their thing and, and they do good work, you don't try and boss them around. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and the other thing is young doctors are a little defensive. They think they know more than you do because they're young and they're yes. out of training and you're an old fogey. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, been it's, there. It's uh, somewhat amusing and somewhat um, interesting, I suppose. Uh, uh, but... Um, uh, I, 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 I say in my book over and over again that it took me years to get to where I'm at now. And so when I see some of the younger doctors look at me as if I'm a little funky, I just say, well, you know, I was there once. And yeah. um, you'll grow and learn. Well, the reason for the question was that I wondered if you tried to uh, encourage, in a positive way, others to do as you do and to be honest about these matters when people are terminal. Well... Um, you know, it is, um, um, such a delicate subject that it has to come up voluntarily. Uh, I actually, uh, the, the hospital here was so excited about my book that they gave a copy of my book to everyone, all the doctors on the medical staff. Were, um, oh, nice. 200 of them. And so a lot of them I have actually sat down and talked at great length about these things, but... I, I don't like to seem like I'm proselytizing or trying to make myself out as somebody special. Yeah. Uh, no. So I don't I don't go knocking on doors saying, what you think of my book? The people who are interested will come to me and talk to me about it and, uh, and have some very good conversations. And the ones who don't want to talk about it are the ones who don't want to talk about it. And uh, it's a horse and water sort of thing. You know, I can't make them drink. And so um, they have to they have to come to it when they're ready. Uh, a lot of them, are, like I said, are still a bit threatened, um, and they and also they, they they sort of got their head in the sand. And all there is is science, and um, talk about talk about anything else is sort of um, not appropriate. And 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 the other thing is the younger doctors are really getting brainwashed in a way that wasn't true for me. Uh, in that uh, they're coming out of training, being told that there's only one right way to do things, and then you can't think for yourself. Oh, and so doctors are more and more automatons than they ever were, and, you know, uh, and so uh, they're not open to free thinking. Uh, you know, some of it's generational. I came of age in the '60s, and of course, we were free thinkers. Yeah. Well, no, uh, that's interesting because I actually have a friend who um, he goes. He's at Hofstra for uh, uh, studying medicine, and he's he's exactly like what you just said. <laughs> oh, he, he's a, he's an atheist, and is like. If you try to tell him otherwise, he he just gets angry, like legitimately angry at you. Like, it's it's weird and it's kind of scary, really. I don't believe in atheists. Yeah. There is any such thing. They may think they are, but anyway. Uh, have you run into people, Doctor, in, from different traditions who don't believe as you do, or do you kind of feel your way? And, and as, you, as you say, when, when the time is right, you bring it up even with the patients. Uh, do, do, do you find any conflicts uh, in, in the... The, the traditions of the diversity of patients you might run into in a 21st century hospital? 
Well, yeah, I'd like to address that. Uh, one of the things I want to make very clear is that I do respect uh, the notion that it's not quite appropriate for someone like me to start the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a doctor in an office. I'm not supposed to talk politics, for that matter, religion, uh, unless the patient op opens the door. Um, and But once they open the door, we can talk about anything. We can talk about hobbies. We can talk politics. We can talk religion. I have patients who I'm very fond of, and we have uh, diverse political opinions, and um, uh, we can joke about it, and that's that. Uh, as it turns out, uh, where I've been living and practicing for the past 30 years has been in rural America, where um, things are fairly traditional, and 90% of my patients, I think, are Christians. Uh, and so there isn't a lot of diversity with respect to the people I see uh, and their religious beliefs. But um, okay. in my book, you know, I... Um, the book is a collection of stories, and each chapter is a story with a different patient. And I have one story about a patient uh, who's an atheist, and I describe in there the uh, conversations we had. Uh, and, and again, he, he raised the issues with me because he knew from other patients in the waiting room sort of what kind of conversations we were having, and so he brought it up. And I, I, I tried very hard not to, um, well, we never argued or anything. I just, he brought it up, and he wanted to know what, why I thought, why I thought, and so I told him. Uh, uh, and so there's a story about that in there in the book about how I dealt with him and tried to be as supportive as I could. I'm not here to convince anybody of anything uh, unless they want to hear from me. And mm -hmm. um, so that story is a very interesting illustration of, um, of um, that kind of interface. Um, and like I said, I don't start the conversation, but uh, the thing is, is that the patients here will often just say to me, you know, doctor, we're praying for you. And we have a lot of prayers going on. So they're basically telling me that they're very religious, in which case I wouldn't be uh, stepping on any toes if I brought it up, because they brought it up in the first place. And um, I was very reluctant at first, but it turned out that uh, that reluctance was not well-founded. Patients actually want that from their doctor. And we're all sort of brainwashed into thinking we shouldn't go there. And, of course, there are boundaries and limits, and you can't be, like I said, proselytizing. But... Uh, you're there to bond with your patient on whatever level they want to bond with you. Yeah. To, with the matter of atheists, which I say I don't really believe in, but there are people who think they're atheists, I think. Um, do you ever run into patients who are who claim to be atheists and just don't, or, or do they change, or, or what's the situation with that? I, I, in my own experience, I never ran into a, a dying patient who wasn't atheist. But have you? Uh, I want to make a comment about that. You know, the most famous um, academic atheist in America. W.V.O. Quine, an existential philosopher who just died, and was sort of a, the spokesperson in the face of American atheism or Western atheism, said on his deathbed, gee, maybe there is something thereafter. <laughs> yeah. You can look at W.V. Willard Von Orman Quine from Harvard. But anyway, um, I will, I'll do the story of my book is about, about a guy who was very atheistic, and um, I didn't try and convince him of anything, but he kept asking me questions because he was dying, and of course it's not, like you said, most atheists really don't want to be atheists when, it come, when, they're, when they're facing death. Uh, we live in a, in a society of, of widespread denial. You know, you don't see oh, people yeah. die. You know, you don't see uh, people dying in your home. You don't see people, you know, the plague doesn't come through and kill every fourth person down the block. Mm -hmm. uh, um, 
Um, we haven't had a war that killed a lot of people for um, since Korea. I mean, Vietnam. Uh, and, I mean, the, um, was it 5,000 or so deaths in the, in the Gulf War is very, very tragic, but, um, you know, that would happen in a, in a bad week uh, in the Pacific uh, Theater. Sure. Uh, and, that, you know, and that was a, when we had a smaller population. So we just don't assimilate death very well at all, and that's because we, we don't, it's blocked out of our, our, our sight and our mind. Mm-hmm. You know, when you don't kill your own meat, the meat comes wrapped in a package. You don't even connect the fact that you're eating animal flesh uh, right. with the fact that you're eating a cheeseburger. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, as a seminary student, I worked in two hospitals, ostensibly doing ordinary pastoral work, but I was actually assisting the chaplain with possible possession cases when the doctors simply couldn't arrive at any other conclusion. Uh, wow. So I've met many doctors who were people of faith. Now, again, this is 30, 30 35 years ago or more. Um, scientists and doctors often have the reputation of being, I don't know, afraid of God. Is that really true, or is it more so, so, so or less today than it was in the past? So, in other words, if I were doing the same thing today, I'm, I might not even be doing that because there might be fewer doctors of faith, or is that not true? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because it was a different world 30 years ago, and I make a brief comment about that in my book. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, we haven't seen the book. Were, I, I apologize. Most doctors, and most doctors were very religious and politically conservative up until about 1980 or 1990 or something like that. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the secular progressive movement has sort of, um, you know, been having more and more impact on people, especially in academia. And uh, all doctors come through academia at one level or another. Uh, and um, so the the degree of atheism among science professors, for example, biology professors, for example, in America is now in the 90, 95%. And so 95%. coming of age, and your professor's an atheist, and he's telling you that you're just a collection of molecules, uh, and you have to get a good grade in order to succeed, you, you tend to um, transfer his beliefs onto your own. Yeah, or at least maybe, you know, I know Ben has a question, but I just wanted to make an observation. No, it, go for it. And uh, it's 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 funny because atheism, in the way I understand it, my my advanced degree is in philosophy, so maybe I don't. I like to think I have a handle on this kind of thing. That atheism is really the last holdout of a kind of discredited scientific materialism that quantum mechanics has really pretty much blown out of the water. And I, I've had atheists come to some of our lectures and things. And, uh, you know, I always respect people, but I I think that they come across to me as very sad. I can't think of a better word. Um, I I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm I'm being unfair, but I just... Well, if your life is made up of essentially tiny little Legos, I mean, that's kind of depressing. Yeah, I suppose it is. But I I find it very ironic that in science today, or medicine in particular, we are dealing with life and death. Uh, The the issue would become... um, Perhaps more prominent, that is, there will be more atheists, in, even in the face of the findings of modern physics. I mean, there are physicists who are talking about God now. It might not be the God of theology, but it's, at least they're kind of getting there. And uh, I don't know, it's, uh, it's strange. Well, I can, I, I can give you a very uh, specific answer to your point. Um, uh, there have been, uh, what, what's happened is that the physicists have come around. <laughs> Earlier yeah. in the 20th century, uh, they were the atheists. 
and then with That's the right. quantum revolution, they changed their mind. But the biologists who weren't much of anything until the latter part of the 20th century, um, they don't um, regard, they, they, they haven't gone through the transformation that the physicists have gone through. And as far as they're concerned, quantum mechanics is, is, has nothing to do with them. Uh, you know, you don't have to study quantum mechanics to become a biologist. Right. Uh, you may or may well, not this is the problem with specialization. But, but you don't, you know, most biologists are atheists, or at least they say so when you survey them. And they don't know. They don't understand quantum physics and why it has demolished atheism. So they're just living in this world. And I've read a very, very good essay by an older biologist who who wrote an essay saying, "Look, you know, the biologists haven't figured this out yet. They're a hundred years behind physics. They're yeah. all still in this atheism phase that physics was, and they need to get out of it. Uh, but they won't because their professors, like Richard Dawkins and E.O. Wilson, and so on." Who write books constantly uh, about about how life is just a collection of molecules? They believe it, and it's, it is very sad. Like being back in the uh, 18th century, for heaven's sake. Okay, well, we're coming up on another break, and I'm glad I haven't had to interrupt the doctor once. <laughs> yeah. uh, answers are well spaced. <laughs> but in any case, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Van Eno on CBS New Sky Radio. We'll be right back with Dr. Steve Yacovoni, so stick with us. Enlighten, empower, enrich. This is CBS Radio's The New Sky. New horizons, no boundaries. Drove downtown in the rain, 9.30 on a Tuesday night. Just to check out the late night record shop. Call it impulsive, call it compulsive, call it insane. When I'm surrounded, I just can't stop. It's a matter of instinct, it's a matter of conditioning, a matter of fact. You can call me Pablo Dog. Ring a bell and I'll salivate. How'd you like that? Dr. Landy, tell me you're not just a pedagogue. Cause right now I'm lying in bed Just like Brian Wilson did Well I had lying in bed Just like Brian Wilson did So I'm lying here Just staring at the ceiling tiles And I'm thinking about What I think about Just
CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal. With Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOUL. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. And welcome back. And before we proceed any further, because we are burning up this hour very quickly, I wanted to give Dr. Steve Iacoboni a chance to talk about his book, where you can get it, and his website as well. Take it away, Doc. Well, thanks. Uh, the book is The Undying Soul, A Cancer Doctor's Discovery. Uh, I published it three years ago. I self-published it because uh, I wanted to have control over it and uh, spend more money <laughs> in the process. <laughs> uh, and uh, you can learn all about it at my website, which is theundyingsoul.com, all one word. Uh, and uh, I have blogs there and um, uh, some video and uh, excerpts from the book and some excerpts from the chapters. Uh, listeners and readers can email me from the website. I'm happy to get your emails. I love getting those and responding to those. Um, you know, uh, the book is, uh, I went through a lot of evolutions because I wasn't a professional writer. I just knew I had to write it. And so I had a number of editors, and I finally realized uh, that the way to communicate with people is through stories um, rather than through lectures or through telling them anything. Yes. So the book is a collection of each chapter is a story about a part of my career, usually focusing on one patient and how I responded to the patient's illness and how the patient dealt with their illness. And uh, the first two chapters uh, have me as a young uh, atheist doctor. It's one of the points of the book is that I was an atheist. Mm-hmm. I had come through, you know, I went to school in Berkeley in Southern California in the 70s, 60s and 70s, and uh, atheism was king among us elite scientists. You know, we had landed on the moon without any difficulty, and science was going to conquer any, everything, and the last frontier was, was cancer. Yeah, we never learned. Uh, I went to the top cancer center in the world, uh, I'd like to say, MD Anderson in Houston, and uh, we were going to cure cancer in a short time. I became a professor, and I realized that um, MD Anderson's still there, and cancer's still there, and 30 years later, uh, there have been a lot of discoveries, but people are still dying of cancer. And um, the, uh, the, uh, the myth of science uh, conquering everything has been proven to be just a myth, and uh, I had to come to grips with that. So each step along the way, I came closer to coming back to my roots, obviously with a name like mine. I'm Italian, uh, although I've never been to Italy. Um, and I was a Roman Catholic, uh, but raised and confirmed and so on. And so my patients brought me back. You know, they, they demanded of me that I interact with them, and at first I was resistant. Uh, but that resistance became unbearable. And each chapter talks about how I first didn't resolve it and then did resolve it. And I had patients come along from from very exotic places, uh, even though I was in some little town, and teach me things about life and death that I couldn't have learned by myself. And so it's about my epiphany and and then what the patient's teaching me. And then um, as I became enlightened in this sort of way, I um, 
applied what I'd learned to my patients in the rest of my career and what a transformation was for everybody, especially myself, because I no longer had to um, be um, tormented by their, their, their situation any more than they did. Uh, uh, I believe in the soul. I believe in what we were taught by the ancients uh, in all three of the great religions um, is true. We have a soul that is eternal. There is a, a God who cares about us, and um, we're not just a collection of molecules. And so um, it's a fun book. The book is made to be read quickly because that's what readers demand these days. And it's, it's patient-centered. It's about stories about patients and how they... How they um, how they overcame. Um, they may not have overcome physically. Many of them did not survive, but they overcame spiritually and they died victorious deaths. And that's what taught me that their spirit was real and that the spirit is real. Mm-hmm. So that's the book, The Undying Soul. That was my discovery. Oh, very good. Can you share with us uh, what might I suppose not, not, none of these conversations uh, is typical, but. What, what uh, I suppose a, a conversation might be with someone, you know, when you get to the point of addressing the beyond, you know, the, the um, beyond the bodily death issue, uh, exactly what you would say to them. Uh, do you sort of you, do you sort of feel your way depending on their their own beliefs, or, or what what exactly takes place in the conversation? Right. I do indeed uh, feel my way. I really feel like it's not my place to try and um, impose any of my beliefs on anybody. Because as a physician, you have a level of authority uh, and power and power of discourse that, that you know puts you at an advantage, and I'm not here to proselytize. Uh, so I actually let the patients tell me what they believe, and then I support them. Um, and I have some patients who tell me up front... Uh, that they have a deep and abiding faith and they have no fear, and I um, I wholeheartedly endorse their beliefs and support them, and they feel very happy that there isn't any sort of you know conflict between their caregiver and their own belief system, because if I was an atheist uh, and I was harassing them to take more chemo so that they could live another 20 minutes, uh, that wouldn't comport with the fact that they know that they're going to heaven. Uh, in other cases... Um, um, it's a little more subtle than that, but uh, they simply um, uh, um, and uh, the conversation may be a lot less specific. But they simply, uh, um, I try and let them know that I believe that while they are dying, that um, it's not the end of everything for them, uh, and um, they take a lot of comfort in my. In my affirmation of the beliefs they've already gotten from their uh, clerics, okay. um, you know, um, what's what's peculiar and unique is that I'm a man of science giving affirmation to what they've heard from their clerics. That's what they really like from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got their clerics, uh, most of them, maybe all of them, and they've already been told that they have an eternal soul by their clerics. But that's what clerics do. Uh, for a man of science to give affirmation to that is enormously uh, comforting to them. And that's kind of what my role is. Question, but I was just wondering, um, I know that in my experience in hospitals, obviously it's quite different from yours, but in, in pastorally, I, I witnessed what I believed were several very beautiful, what would be called near-death experiences. Uh, 
Uh, and these were mostly old people. This was a state hospital, and there were a lot more inpatients than there are today, uh, mostly psychiatric patients. But many of them also had serious difficulties of other kinds and were bedridden. And it was mostly with people like this. Have, have you ever witnessed what you believe is a near-death experience? You mean uh, present when they actually die? I actually have a chapter in my book about a patient who um, who was very peculiar because he didn't have any fear of death, uh, and he was, uh, and yet he wasn't very religious either. That was what was peculiar about him, and. And so uh, it turned out that he'd had a near-death experience earlier in life. And so he and I got to talking about it when he was, I mean, I was his doctor and I was taking care of his cancer. And he went on for about a year and then his cancer roared back and it was time for him. He was, you know, there's nothing more I could do for him. And then he was, unlike a lot of other patients, really, really not at all concerned about the fact that he was laying there on his deathbed. And we talked about it and he said, you know, remember when I told you about having botulism when I was working on the the, um, the pipeline in the Arctic 50 years ago? Because I died, and I came back to life, and so I've had a near-death experience, and so I, I know that it, the death is um, not the end, because I've already been there. Okay. Um, and, you know, the thing about it was he was very, very, very um, calm and completely unconcerned about his death, in a way that almost no other patients were, and so I had to believe him. I like and that. So I wrote, yeah. yeah, and I wrote that story in the book about him and how how, how um, unique he was. And then I researched the question, and, and people who have made it their business to sort of study people who have had near-death experiences, they all say the same thing, that people who have had near-death experiences have no fear of death mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they know from their yeah. own experience what it is, and it's not bad. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? If you think about it, death is the most human experience that we could have. Well, I think it's a ticket to our survival. In my, in my last book, I write about it as well. Just you know, my experience. I think what is the most deadly thing to our souls? It's boredom. And it seems like, you know, why have the, the death experience? Because really in the quantum multiverse, you, you really can't have death because there isn't time. There isn't past and future as, as, as we understand that that's more of a, of a sort of an experience of our consciousness. But, um, but I can see why people would feel that way. I like to think that I feel that way because I'm not facing death as far as we know because any of us get up in the morning, you never know what's going to happen, especially today. But uh, in any case, I, I do like that story. That's why I even look forward to uh, uh, reading the book even more. Uh, we're just about coming up on another break. However, do you want to put – I don't know if you want to – We already talked about that. Yeah, we did. All right. Okay. <laughs> Well, in that case, um, well, we still have another minute. So, so uh, doctor, as far as um, uh, this particular patient was concerned, but you, you yourself have not actually witnessed a, a near-death experience. I mean, I, uh, I mean I've had uh, a really uh, – well, I had a man sort of sit up who was paralyzed from the neck down. He was an Irishman. Um, say in Hebrew, the words were Abba. And once, when I learned Hebrew after that, it was like that's like it's a very intimate way of saying father. It, it's like daddy's coming, and he, he dropped back down on the pillow peacefully, and that was. Um, th- there we are. So anyway, we're going to take our break. We'll be right back. CBS New Sky Radio and our very interesting guest, Dr. Steve Yacovoni, author of The Undying Soul: A Cancer Doctor's Discovery. We'll be right back. So stay with us. Enlighten, empower, enrich. This is CBS Radio's The New Sky. New horizons, no boundaries. 
blue suede shoes and I boarded the plane. Touched down in the land of the Delta blues in the middle of the pouring rain. WC handy, won't she look down over me? Yeah, I got a first class ticket, but I'm as blue as a boy can be. Then I'm walking in Memphis. Walking with my feet ten feet off a beam, walking in Memphis. But do I really feel the way I feel? Saw the ghost of Elvis on Union Avenue. Followed him up to the gates of Graceland, and I watched him walk right through. Now security they did not see him. They just hover round this tomb, but there's a pretty little thing waiting for the king down in the jungle room. When I was walking in Memphis, I was walking with my feet ten feet off a beam. Walking in Memphis. Fish on the table. They've got gospel in the air. River and green, be glad to see you when you haven't got a prayer. But boy, you got a prayer in Memphis. Every Friday at the Hollywood, and they brought me down to see her, and they asked me if I would do a little number, and I sang with all my might. She said, "Tell me, are you a Christian child?" And I said, "Ma'am, I am tonight." Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248 545 Soul. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. Welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben. This one over here is Paul. And with us is Dr. Stephen Iacoboni. And we are talking of the death experience. Yes, so please uh, go on, as you were saying during the break, Doctor, the uh, learning from the death experience. Yeah, that was really what turned me around. Uh, As I said, the book is laid out. The first few chapters are me as a young, uh, seemingly omnipotent scientist, and yet my patients are dying, and so I can't reconcile that. And so I um, realize I'm not omnipotent, and science is not omnipotent, and I go searching for answers. Um, That sets the stage for the rest of the book. Uh, And I... Wound up, I decided to go in private practice, uh, leave academia so that I could um, maybe do the search without all the clutter of academia. Uh, and I was 
I was kind of floundering. I wasn't getting anywhere. And then a, a patient came into my life in a way that was uh, seemingly quite, quite so improbable that I don't think it was an accident. Uh, he came to me from Ukraine. Uh, he didn't speak any English, and he uh, there was a tiny Russian community in the town I lived in. And he had been exposed to radiation from Chernobyl, and he had leukemia, and he was dying. Please. And Russia did not, at the time, have any way of taking care of him. And so he got a compassionate visa through then Speaker of the House Tom Foley and uh, wound up in my office uh, 10,000 miles away. And, uh, and he never spoke a word of English to me, but he had a profound influence on my life because he... Uh, was the most one of the most spiritually pure people I've ever known, and I took care of him for a couple of years until his death. And he and I became very, very close, and so I wrote wrote that chapter in the book. And it was a turning point in my life, uh, professionally and spiritually, because uh, I had a very intense and moving experience the night that he died, and that's described in some detail in the book, uh, where he. Um, he just died with a smile on his face, and it was a very slow and sort of agonizing death, but he never, ever complained, mm -hmm. and he refused to take any narcotics. You know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is that one of the reasons why doctors sort of miss out on the experience of the dying is because people who die slowly are on a morphine trip, and they're out of it. You know, their consciousness is gone until their body, until their heart stops beating. Well, he wouldn't allow that, and... Uh, and so he communicated to me while he was dying, without any words, because he didn't speak English, and it's hard to, and my Russian isn't very good. Um, he, you know, I just looked at me. We looked at each other, and I watched the light fade out of his eyes over like about an hour, and I held his hand in the dark. And uh, I, I um, you know, I didn't hallucinate. I didn't see, you know, you know uh, his body float out of his his. I didn't have any kind of paranormal experience, but it was as real as anything. You know, I, I felt uh, he wanted me to understand and feel his the strength of his faith and his utter fearlessness and his spiritual completeness as he faced death. And that was his gesture to me because, of course, he didn't pay me a penny for all the work I did. Not that I wanted anything from him. Yeah. Uh, but um, he paid me in a way that that I could never repay. It's worth more than millions of dollars. He gave me my faith back. He sat there and he held my hand and he died the perfect death. And when I saw that, my life was changed. And it was then that I knew I had to write the book, although it took a while, you know, to figure it out. Wow. Um, because I still found it. But that book is, um, in that chapter is sort of the fifth chapter of the book and it sets the stage for the rest of the book and for my transformation and what I refer to as my discoveries. Have you seen terminally ill patients change? based on what you have said to them. I know you don't give yourself credit for it. None of us would. But what kind of difference does the spiritual belief make for them? And uh, have you seen a change like this take place? And in, in what percentage of patients? Well, one of the points I make in the book, um, you know, when you're writing a book, you have to be pretty clear. Uh, it has to be pretty, pretty straightforward what you're writing about. And so the first part of the book, I'm an atheist. My patients are urban. I'm in Houston or I'm in Los Angeles, different parts of my career. The patients are agnostic, and the death is just miserable. I'm miserable. They're miserable. They don't want to die. They don't know what's going to happen to them. I have no answers. That's the first part of the book. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's only a couple chapters. 
And then I'm out here in, in eastern Washington around in the wheat fields, and most of my patients are, are Christian churchgoers because that's the demographic. And uh, one of the things that impressed me was that even among them there was a lot of fear, a lot of angst. And they wanted me to re- relieve that. And while I was agnostic, I didn't know how to. Uh, and so when I when I had my Russian patient, whose name was Pavel, which is Russian for Paul, right. uh, when, once he effected the transformation in me, then I showed a strength of purpose and affirmation in my patients that totally transformed my experience and their experience. You know, we eliminated fear in the, in the oncology board. Uh, eliminates a strong word. We reduced it dramatically. And for patients who wanted me to give them affirmation, I did. And when that happened, uh, there was, you know, fear was, was a thing of the past. And so it had this dramatic effect on the dying experience. And I finally realized this is the way it's supposed to be. And that's so I went to all the time and trouble to, to take the professional risks to write my book because the message is, is that is that important. Um, my wife didn't like it. You know, she knew that it was going to possibly get me in trouble and interrupt uh, my career. Uh, but I, I, I didn't have a choice. You know, these people had come to me and given, given me my faith, and I had to repay them, and so that's why I wrote the book. And so I know for a fact that if a patient is, uh, you know, faith is a difficult thing. It's a, you know, it has to be maintained. It has to be nurtured. You have to believe in the unseen, right? And so... If someone says to you, yes, you're right, you know, there are angels waiting for you in heaven, and, and I'm not a kook, I'm a, I'm a doctor who's a scientist, then it's easier for them to believe it. And we, um, we live in a world that's, that's run by, by, by secular um, uh, uh, philosophy, and so the society doesn't embrace or support them the way it used to 50 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so uh, my support for them is, is in many ways invaluable. Well, we're just about done, but I just wanted to mention that I personally learned early on, maybe you could echo this, that uh, the family really should be involved. I would always advise them, you know, to to touch the person and tell them, you know, be there in every possible way according to all the senses the person had left. And that made such a difference. In the, if you want, if you can call it the quality of the, we don't, we don't use the word death on the show. I call it translation. It's an ancient theological term. I think it's much more accurate. So, uh, but anyway, I guess that's just an observation. We're just about, uh, just about done. But, Doctor Steve Giacoboni, give us your book and website one more time, if you would, please. With pleasure. It's um, the Undying Soul: A Cancer Doctor's Discovery, and you can uh, learn more about it at uh, www.theundyingsoul.com. Uh, the book is available on Amazon also, or you can buy it through the website. Uh, you can read my blogs. Or you can read extras from the book to see whether you like it. Uh, uh, please email me uh, at author at theundyingsoul.com. You can email me straight from the website. I love getting emails. I have a vibrant conversation going on with my readers, and it's very fulfilling and exciting, and uh, I welcome everyone to participate. Well, I think you're going to get one from me. I really enjoyed our conversation. <laughs> Dr. Steve Yacoboni, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again. Okay, Paul and Ben, thanks a lot. It's been a real pleasure. Great. Okay. okay. And you can check out not only uh, the doctor's books, but mine and Barnes & Noble Nook and, e- and the, the Kindle, Amazon Kindle e-readers. All right, so check out our websites, com, and where you can find nearly 500 free podcasts of our past shows. Also check out our site at www.newenglandghosts.com where there are case studies, uh, photos, along with articles by my dad. 
And if you buy my books on either of those sites, you will help us keep those podcasts free. So many thanks to our producer, Brandon Jackson. And you almost stepped on my line. Next week's show uh, will be a – I heard you get ready for it. <laughs> it should be a rebroadcast. Uh, but we'll see you in two weeks, May 19th, when we will welcome back a British police officer, Gary Hesseltine. And we will be talking about UFOs and the police and the recent citizens' hearings on UFO disclosure in Washington. And in the meantime, tune into our Boston Providence Drive Time show on WON 1240 AM and ONWorldwide.com at 6 p.m. Eastern Time every Monday. Check out, uh, again, those podcasts on BehindTheParanormal.com. We'll leave you this evening with a thought. I guess we're going to leave right now because we're just about done. All right, we'll save the quote for next week. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.